As we'll hear today, this place has and will have great significance in Earth's final days. Let's open our Bibles now and join Pastor Phil for our study. John said I was given one of these these reeds, this measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The Greek word for temple is naos, and it doesn't refer to the whole temple complex because it was a big, under Herod, it was a big area. It refers to the temple proper, the holy place, the holy of holies. And then right outside, you had the brazen altar of sacrifice. So that was included as well. But just that immediate place, okay, not the whole under Herod, the whole, I don't know how many acres he had this whole temple complex, okay? And teachers would wander and with their disciples in different areas, and there would be teaching going on. This is the temple proper, the actual building of the temple which John is told to, uh, to measure. Also, the altar, as I said, was probably the brass altar, the altar of sacrifice. And he was also told to measure those who worshipped in the temple. The worshippers in John's vision were, again, a remnant of Orthodox Jews who would be alive during the tribulation period worshipping God. Now, the question is, what purpose for, you know, what was the purpose of John? measuring this temple. I mean, it doesn't seem to be that um, actual measurements were attained. I mean, nothing is told us about any measurements. Why was uh, John told to measure the thing, but nothing was actually written down? No measurements were really taken in regard to dimensions and things. Well, I think two reasons. First of all, to show us that this was a literal temple. You'd be amazed to see how many commentators try to make this a spiritual temple. And they liken it to the church because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, geez, will you guys get it through your heads? The church is gone. You know, these commentaries, it's like, guys, get it through your head. The church has been raptured. I mean, this is a literal temple. I mean, this is not spiritual, allegorical. It's literal. Number one. Number two, I also believe that by having John measure this temple... It represents how that in the Old Testament, in several places, God had different prophets measure out Jerusalem and other places when he was about to bring judgment. When God told a prophet to go measure a place, a city or whatever, it usually meant he was measuring them for judgment. In fact, you can turn to Amos chapter 7. I'll give you one example. There are several, but Amos chapter 7, starting at verse 7. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a, on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. 
The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. And the idea is that you're talking about measuring or marking out something for judgment. That God is kind of saying, this area here, I'm going to judge, is the idea. Now, why does God mark out his temple for judgment? Because technically this is not his temple. This is a defiled temple. It's a place where the Jews who have rejected the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the only blood that can really take away sin, they've rejected that blood. And now they are worshiping God using animal sacrifices and the blood of animals, which God at this point now considers defiled and an abomination. Those things were shadows for the Old Testament until, the, until Jesus could come, the reality. When you have the reality who has shed his blood for the sins of the world, the blood of goats and bulls can only temporary, t- temporarily cover our sins until the ultimate sacrifice could be made. And now Jesus has come and the Jews reject him and they've gone back to the animal sacrifices. In God's mind, this was an abomination. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66, starting at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is, who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Listen, he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. God is talking about a future time in the history of the nation when they will do everything he prescribed in the law. They will offer the blood of animals. They will offer uh, the grain offerings and all. But God says, I will look upon all of it as if it's defiled, an abomination. That's because it's this period we're talking about, this temple uh, in the millennia, in the uh, tribulation period where Jews are going to be offering sacrifices to God but they're an abomination because God has already offered his son for our sins and that is the only offering that needed to be made and so God, John is told to measure the temple of God including the altar and those who worship in it to mark them out for judgment we'll have you turn to one more scripture Zechariah 13 now God's going to judge his people but not all of them. He is going to save a remnant. Most of Israel is going to be apostate. Most of the Jewish people during this time are going to be apostate. But some of them will respond to the Lord. He will save them. And it says in Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, 
And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. This one-third is going to be the remnant. I will bring the one-third through the fire, through this fiery time of tribulation, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. These are the ones that are going to be entering into the millennial kingdom. But for the most part, you have a situation where uh, in Jerusalem at this time, this rebuilt temple, the Orthodox Jews, many of them, are not going to repent and continue to offer God false worship. Now, we're talking about this rebuilt temple, which is really a key to the whole passage in Revelation, and, and actually key to the whole prophetic picture, by the way. Let me just stop for the remaining of our, uh, remainder of our time this evening, and let's just talk about the history of the Jewish temples, because I think it's important to kind of get this in your mind, all right? We know that Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem around 1050 B.C., We've all read about that. We know how glorious it was. And uh, it lasted about 400 years until the Babylonians came and destroyed it in six, uh, excuse me, in 586 B.C. So about what? About maybe 500 years. And the temple there, Solomon's temple, was destroyed. Well, after the Babylonian captivity was over and the Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland, out of about 2.5 million only about 50,000 actually took, took the king's offer and went back to Jerusalem. And under Zerubbabel and Joshua, Zerubbabel was the political leader, the civic leader. Uh, Joshua was the high priest at this time. And around 536 B.C., they started to rebuild the temple. It's, it's often called Zerubbabel's temple. And they wound up taking, I don't know, maybe uh, 15 or 20 years uh, before it was finished. But then in 20 B.C., the temple was we say rebuild, but it was actually refurbished, all right? Zerubbabel's temple was a pretty low-budget operation compared to Solomon's. In fact, when they laid the foundation for Zerubbabel's temple, the young men, the young Jews, shouted for joy. We're going to have a temple again. This is awesome. The old men, who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple, wept because this was such a low-budget deal, you know? You're talking Taj Mahal compared to some shack in the, in the woods, all right? A really low-budget deal. So when Herod the Great came on the scene about 20 B.C., he wanted to kind of curry the favor of the Jews. He was not really a Jew. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. He really had no right to the throne of Israel, but Rome liked him, put him in power, but the Jews hated him. All right. So he wanted to kind of ingratiate himself to them. So he decided the best way to do that was to take this low-budget temple that Zerubbabel built so many years earlier and refurbish it. He took 46 years to refurbish this thing. I mean, he expanded the temple. Remember, the Temple Mount now was a mount. All right. He expanded it by using a series of um, arches that led to, that were, uh, you know, it was underground um, streets and things that had these arches that were built one on top of each other until you could, he could take the Temple Mount and extend it out and then build the Temple Precinct all over the place. I mean, it took 46 years. I don't think it was probably as glorious as Solomon's Temple, but it was probably pretty spectacular. This was the Temple that Jesus said, there was coming a day when not one stone would be left upon another. 
Well, what happened was 38 years after Jesus' resurrection, that prophecy came to pass. The Romans came and attacked uh, Jerusalem, and the Romans burned the temple, and the, the fire was so hot, it melted the gold in the ceiling of the temple, and it ran down the walls and got into the cracks of the stones. And to get out the gold, the Romans' soldiers literally took every stone apart, knocked every stone down to get the gold. They literally leveled this temple so that not one stone was standing upon another, just as Jesus had said. Now, there is coming a fifth temple. Okay, that was the third temple. Even though it was refurbished, you know, Zerubbabel's temple kind of refurbished, many scholars call it the third temple. There's coming a fifth temple. When the millennial kingdom is established, the Bible says the Lord himself will build that temple. Say, how long will it take him? It won't take him 46 years. (laughs) He'll probably speak the word, and it will be built. And you can read about that in Ezekiel 40, chapter 48, and Haggai 2, verse 9, and Zechariah 6. But there is a fourth temple that is yet to be built, and this we'll call the Tribulation Temple. The Tribulation Temple is going to be built early in the first half of the last seven-year period. Uh, We think that, as Daniel tells us, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel for one week, seven years. Probably in that covenant is going to be a provision for them to rebuild their temple. Now, here's the thing. I forgot the scripture. I didn't pull it out. I should have. There is a scripture I remember in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, where God talks about this, and he calls it a tabernacle. All right? We think of a massive stone structure, and how long is that going to take to get this thing thrown up? You're, you're talking 46 years to refurbish the Rebbe Temple. How are they going to build this thing so quickly? Technically, they don't have to build a temple. They can put up a tabernacle. They could put up a tent. If the Jews tomorrow, boom, get the okay to go ahead and put up something to start worshiping God, they're not going to take years and years to build a temple. They're probably going to throw up a tabernacle and then worry about a more permanent structure down the road. So it doesn't take any time to do that, right? But this tabernacle or temple is going to be built early in the first half of the tribulation under the patronage and protection of the Antichrist. He's going to be behind it. Again, probably this will be part of the covenant he makes with Israel to allow them to have their temple sacrifices again and uh, so that um, Orthodox Jews can begin to return to uh, the law of God and offering sacrifices and so on. And, and, and many Jews are going to be brought back to that whole Mosaic system of sacrifice. We do know that in the middle of the last seven years, though, the Antichrist is going to go into this rebuilt temple. He is going to stop the sacrifices to the God of Israel. He's going to set up his own image in the Holy of Holies. He's going to then demand to be worshipped as God. This is what the Bible calls the abomination that causes desolation. And this will officially begin the final three and a half years, or what we call the Great Tribulation Period. Let's look at a few of these. Turn to Daniel 9.27. Got to move quick. Daniel 9.27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's, again, the Antichrist signing this peace treaty with Israel. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Wow. I'll give you just a quick, easy version. He is going to desecrate the temple 
by putting his image up in the Holy of Holies. We know that, okay? Maybe from Daniel it's not quite clear how he's going to desecrate the temple. But we learn from Jesus in Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to even get his clothes. He's talking about Jews now in Israel and around Jerusalem and all. Verse 21, for then there will be, what? Great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So this is going to be the beginning of the final seven, excuse me, final three and a half years of the seven, which we call the Great Tribulation, or the scriptures call the Great Tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, the true and living God, or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. You know, he, all of a sudden the mask comes off now. The wolf reveals himself for who he is, all right? Up until this time, man of peace, you know, magnanimous individual, letting the Jews rebuild their temple, uh, having their sacrifices again to the God of Israel, until finally the midpoint goes in, stops all that, puts his image in the Holy of Holies, demands to be worshipped as God. We read about this more in Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15. It says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which... He was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the, uh, to the beast, who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, uh, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So at this point now, the worship of the Antichrist becomes official, Okay, I'm sure there are a lot of people worshiping him before this, but now it becomes mandatory worship. He demands worship. If you don't worship his image, you'll be killed. Now, there's a lot of excitement among Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews in Israel today who want to build what they call the third temple. They don't call Zerubbabel's temple, or excuse me, Herod's temple, the third temple. They still call it the second temple because it was a refurbishing, okay, a remodeling. They call the coming temple, the one we have called the tribulation temple or the fourth temple, they call it the third temple. They don't see it as a tribulation temple like we do, of course. But there's a lot of excitement among Orthodox Jews, many, not all, but many in Israel, to build what they call the third temple. And I I have personally been to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem several times. And if you go to the Temple Institute, they will show you all the things that they already have ready for the temple when it's finally built for the sacrifices to begin. They've got 60% of all the implements already created. The shovels and the, the slaughtering knives and, and uh, different things. They've got the priestly garments already made. Um, they've got a lot of things. They've got two yeshivas, which are schools, teaching young Jewish men who have the last name Cohen. Why Cohen? Because Cohen means priest. 
And so they're, they're training these Jews, Jewish young guys, uh, how to be priests under the old sacrificial system. They're getting ready. They're gearing it up right now. And you say, well, why are they teaching these men to sacrifice animals? Because they don't believe that our Savior, their Messiah, died for their sins. But they do realize that God said in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, I have given you the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul, right? The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 22 said, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. And the Orthodox Jews realize that there has to be uh, the shedding of blood for their sins to be atoned for. God made that very clear under the old system, that the innocent could die for the guilty as a substitute. But it had to be without spot or blemish. In other words, the animal had to be perfect. Now, it all looked forward to the ultimate perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who when he died would take away the sin of the world, right? But the Orthodox Jews realize that, you know, there has to be the shedding of blood if our sins are going to be atoned for. So they are now teaching young men how to go ahead and sacrifice. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Peter is going to be extremely uh, happy about all this. Uh, when, I don't know how they're going to deal with them, but, you know, when the, when the Jews return to the sacrificial system, but I'll let them worry about it. I'm not planning on being here, so they can they can worry about that down the road. But... What's keeping them from building the temple? What's keeping them right now from doing this? There's excitement. They're, they're making all the preparations. They're training the, the young men for the priesthood. What's keeping them from building this temple? Well, the main obstacle standing in the way of building this temple is that the Orthodox Jews believe that the Muslim Dome of the Rock Shrine sits on the very spot where Solomon's temple once stood. And they know that they cannot build the new temple on any other place than the old temple where that stood. And also because Muslims believe that it's the place from which Muhammad ascended to heaven, it is one of the most sacred shrines in the Islamic world. You mess with the Dome of the Rock, you've got a holy war on your hands to end all holy wars. And that's really been the sticking point. But about 25 years ago, after spending 16 years studying the Temple Mount area, a physicist and archaeologist at the Hebrew University named Dr. Asher Kaufman uh, published a very, st- it was a kind of startling, land-breaking report. It showed up, first of all, in March-April edition of Biblical Archaeology Review. It's 1983, uh, March-April edition. And uh, in that edition, Dr. Kaufman declared that while the Dome of the Rock has always been assumed to be on the spot where Solomon's Temple sat, from Dr. Kaufman's research, he claims the actual temple, Solomon's Temple, stood not where the Dome of the Rock is, but 100 meters to the north. If you look at the Temple Mount, 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock, you will find a little gazebo-type structure And they believe that sits on the very spot where the Holy of Holies was, Dr. Kaufman does, and now many other scholars who have looked at his uh, his research. Uh, One of the things that they they claim is that uh, the bedrock comes up uh, at that area where that little gazebo is, uh, and it's very, it, it comes up to the surface, and it's very level and smooth. Perfect for a temple. If you look where the Dome of the Rock is, and I've been inside the Dome of the Rock, uh, it's a, there's a kind of a, a, a fence around this, you can have a kind of a, a wooden wall, you look over and you see this outcropping of this rock. 
Very jagged outcropping of rock, not level, smooth at all. Doesn't seem likely you'd put the temple on that. So, you know, and this other place, though, uh, does is very smooth, and the bedrock, of course, is very solid. So it seems like more of a logical place to have built the temple, but I think in some ways it's also more historical. Because according to the Mishnah, now the Mishnah is a uh, highly esteemed book of Jewish oral traditions, and according to the Mishnah, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, it was said that he could look from the Holy of Holies through the curtain, because it was parted now, through the door of the temple, he could look all the way through the eastern gate. It all lined up. Excavations in the 1970s showed that where the eastern gate is today, the original eastern gate is right beneath where the eastern gate is today. So it's still in the same line. And I have been on the on the Temple Mount. I have stood, in fact, I've got a picture, standing behind this little gazebo, looking through it, and I've got a picture where you can see that the eastern gate is dead ahead. Interesting. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.